Well, good morning. I'm Camper Mundy, Associate Pastor. Uh, my joy to welcome you as well this morning. Special welcome uh, also to our, our visitors, our guests. Uh, we're glad that you, you did join us this Lord's Day. And our text this morning is Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 32. It's found on page 874 if you're using the Pew Bible. And the part of Luke 15 that we're going to be in this morning uh, will be very familiar uh, to many of you, uh, possibly all of you, uh, whether you know the scripture reference or not. Uh, it's one of the most loved and well-known parables in all of scripture, uh, right up there with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, but the one that we're in today is the parable uh, most often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, a parable is a story with a purpose. Uh, it's an illustration of biblical truth in narrative form. In, in many ways, you might think of a, a parable like a good movie today, uh, trying to communicate something and doing it by way of story, so much so that hopefully you are able to enter into that story and even be a character within that story. Now, I haven't forgotten about the first part of Luke 15. We're going to be there next week. Uh, next week, we'll look at the double parable, because they go hand in hand, but the, the double parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Uh, but for today, we're going to look at the story of a father and two sons. And very important for us is this. Jesus wants his listeners. In other words, he wants us, as we listen, as we hear this parable, to identify with the two sons. Both of whom are lost. This is actually not the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son but rather the parable of the lost sons, plural. And so today we are going to look at the second double parable in Luke 15, that of the lost younger son and the lost older son. And as we explore this double parable in Luke 15, and as we seek to identify with these two sons, Ultimately, the hope is, is that we will consider, that we will engage with the extravagant love of the Father. The extravagant love of God. Well, let me pray for us before we hear God's word. Our good and gracious God, we look to you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is living and active. We would ask this morning that you would pierce our hearts with the truth of the gospel. That you would open us to your word and your word to us. That we might repent, that we might believe, that we might obey. Lord, that we might see you. And so we commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, normally at this point, I would read the passage to you, and uh, many of you would, with open Bible, would, would follow along as I, I read, but, but parables were first spoken. Uh, in, in fact, here we're in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus, so he is recounting what he saw Jesus say and do. And so he's recounting a time when Jesus first spoke 
this illustration of biblical truth in narrative form when he first spoke this parable. And so I invite you to listen, to hear as I tell, as I story tell this parable to you. Uh, I will be referring back to the text, so you'll have time to, to look in your open Bibles. But my encouragement is to just listen at this point. See if you hear something a little different than maybe you've read in the past. And then we'll walk through the passage together, uh, and I'll unpack it for us. But now hear the Word of God from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
My son, said the father, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Given to us for our good and his glory. And so to it we turn. Well, as we walk together through this famous parable uh, that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, this part of Luke 15, I want us to consider a couple of things. Uh, First, we're going to look at the sin of both sons, and then we're going to look at the saving grace of the Father uh, toward both of those sons. So the sin of the two sons and then the Savior as reflected in the Father. And as possibly you've already been able uh, to tell in in hearing the parable, this is a radical, offensive, and beautiful story. A story of a love that seeks and suffers in order to save. So let's let's start with the two sons. You know, at, at, at first glance, they seem to be very different. But really, at the heart of the matter, of the root at it all, they are so very similar. You see, both sons wish their father dead. They both disgrace their father, and they both run from their father. One physically, one spiritually. They both wish their father dead, disgrace him, and run from him. So let's start with the more obvious one, the younger son. Verse 12, he says... Give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of your property. Now, in first century Middle Eastern culture, a request, or rather a demand like this, would be unheard of. One would only receive their father's inheritance upon his death. And and so, to, to make this demand while he is still alive is basically like saying, I wish you were dead, just give me your money. And then we move into verses 13 and 14. And we see that this younger son has, has sold part of the family's property. And he's wasted it all in self-indulgence. Of course, inheritance didn't come in the form of a check, the way we would expect it today. But rather in the form of property and livestock. The form of, of land. Something very near and dear to a family. Very much a part of a family's identity in that culture. Well, this son has sold his portion. In liquidating that inheritance that is so much a, a central part of the family's identity would disgrace them, dishonor them. Further, it would mean a complete cutoff from the father, from the family, in fact, from the entire village. It's as if this son is dead. And then, of course, the situation gets desperate for him. Verses uh, 15 and 16, his response is that he goes and hires himself out to a citizen of that country who then sends him to, to tend the pigs. Well, that citizen of this distant country would be a Gentile, a Gentile being anyone who is ethnically non-Jewish, and Jews did not associate with Gentiles in that time. 
Gentiles being seen as unclean. And then even worse, he is sent to feed pigs. The most unclean animal of all. And so what Jesus is emphasizing here and Luke is recording is that to the fullest sense of being a Jew, this young man has defiled himself and disgraced his family. Now, very important to note is verses 17 through the first part of verse 20. Uh, You might want to take a look at that for just a moment. This is the part where it says when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he then thinks back to the hired men at home, and he begins to put together what what he's going to say. Will he take the risk and return home, and then what would he say to his father? The reason I focus in on this is because this is not sincere repentance, but rather a prepared, calculated speech to get food. It's not sincere repentance. It's a plan, a strategy. He's desperate. He does not think back to relationship with dad, something that needs to be restored. He does not say, maybe my dad still loves me and I I will throw myself on his mercy. In fact, if you look at the end of his statement, he even tends to Order his dad. Make me like one of your hired men. Give me a job. Now, if he is made a hired servant, do you you see the, the disconnect there? This is a son returning to a father, but there would be no father son relationship. He's looking for an a distant employer employee relationship. Now, to emphasize this even further, as as Luke records. Uh, this parable, he twice uses the verb to arise or to get up. Uh, What he's emphasizing here, what he's signaling, is that this young man is going to pick himself up by his bootstraps. It is not a posture of repentance, but rather a posture of self-reliance. He wants no relationship, no grace, no reconciliation. He has figured this out. He will fix things on his own His dad is a meal ticket, a way out of his mess. He has a plan. He's going to work it. And he's going to save himself. Okay, that's the younger son. Now, what about the older son? Let's look at him for a few moments. Now, at first, it may appear that the older brother has a point. I mean, come on. He's the good kid. He does the right things. I know what this is like. I'm an older brother. I have a younger brother. In fact, he lives in New York City. Uh, I've seen him get away with a whole lot of stuff that I never got away with. Uh, I'm curious. Any other eldest children, oldest uh, kids? Come on, don't be shy. Raise raise those hands. Okay, yeah, there's a good number of you out there. We'll we'll, uh, take out all these younger siblings after the service. But seriously, as we read it, we think, oh, I mean, come on, he's got a point. But... We've got to look at it in its cultural context. And what we see as we look at that is we see that like his younger brother, this older son wishes his father dead, disgraces him, and he runs from him as well. Back to the opening scene. Verses 11 and 12. The younger brother says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of your property. What does the older son say? Take a look. Look in the text. It's in there. What does the older son say? Okay, actually, it's not in there. He says nothing. He doesn't say a thing. And in that culture, 
It's the oldest son's responsibility to say something at this moment. It is his responsibility to bridge a gap whenever there is a conflict with anyone in the family and the father. He is to step in. He is to serve as a reconciler within the family. And the older son here, as those original hearers would hear it, he's supposed to step in and fulfill his role as a reconciler, and he does not do it. He's also expected to refuse his share of the estate, but clearly he accepts it for the father divides his property between the two of them. Like the younger son, the older son says to his father, in a sense, I wish you were dead. Now, maybe a lesser sense because uh, this was not pre-planned. He was not the initiator. But his silence reveals his heart. In his silence, we see that he is ready for his father to die. He doesn't care about relationship with his dad. He just wants his dad's stuff. Makes me think back to third grade soccer camp. Uh, During elementary school, and I grew up in uh, northeast Georgia, about an hour and a half, I think, from uh, Clemson, South Carolina. Uh, Shout out to the Wilmots Clemson grads here. Uh, But I would go to Clemson soccer camp because at that day, uh, Clemson owned collegiate soccer. And so... Uh, I was fortunate enough to to live close by and could go to soccer camp. But the third grade year stands out the most. It was the first evening of camp, Sunday evening. It was a hot and muggy day. uh, And we were sitting, all the the kids are sitting out on a brick patio. And, of course, the uh, directors and the coaches are in the shade. And they're giving speeches or something, you know the rules and regulations of the week, and some inspirational talk about soccer. And I was just sweating and bored out of my gourd until I noticed the two cute girls sitting in front of me. And so that's where my attention was diverted. But suddenly one of them was not so cute because I overheard what she said to her friend, and I will never forget it. She turned to her friend and said, I cannot wait for my grandmother to die. And her friend said, what, why? And she said, because then I get a whole lot of her stuff. Didn't care about relationship with her grandmother. Just wanted what her grandmother had. And apart from God's grace, isn't that the condition of our hearts? Exposing the hate, the greed, the sin. And for this older brother, that's what's going on in his heart. Verse 28, after the younger brother is restored, the party is started, uh, the older brother uh, finds out about all of this, it says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now again, we think, well, yeah, of course, this makes sense, he would refuse to go in. This isn't right. But we're thinking like 21st century Americans. We've got to think like uh, 1st century Middle Eastern context. The eldest son was required by custom to be at any party that was thrown by his father. In fact, he always had an honor because the eldest son would always get to serve as a co-host with his father. And so as the original hearers are hearing this, and I should make clear in verses 1 to 3, you can see that though Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners, It's the Pharisees and the scribes who say, this man welcomes sinners, and Jesus turns and speaks to them. He's telling them 
the Pharisees, the scribes, teachers of the law. He's telling them this parable. But as they hear this, they know what this older brother is expected to do. This oldest son, he is expected to publicly embrace the honored guest, no matter how much he dislikes him. To embrace him, in this case, of course, his brother, his younger brother. But instead, he refuses to go in. He dishonors his brother. And he disgraces his father by not going to the party. And then verses 29 to 30, we find the insulting public speech disgracing his father even further. This oldest son could have pulled his father aside to express his anger, but instead he humiliates him in front of the guests. He speaks harshly to his dad in front of the villagers. In a sense, he turns away from the father. And so very much like his younger brother, this older son wishes his father dead, he disgraces him, and he runs from him. Okay, let's make this personal for a moment. How are we like the younger son? And, And how are we like the older son? Because truth be told, we're really like both of them. All of us are really like both of these sons to varying degrees. Now, most of us will probably identify with one more than the other. Uh, Some of you will identify more with the younger son. Uh, You're into the freedom of self-discovery. You're a relativist at heart. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. Whatever. It's okay. And really, what's going on in your life in this sense is that you're trying to save yourself, self-sufficiency, by just simply, sincerely following your heart. What's wrong with that? Well, then others, like myself, will identify more with the older son. We're into moral conformity. We are legalists at heart. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But if you could look deep within our hearts, a lot of the times when we are doing the right thing, it is either to look good or to be validated or to get what we want. The problem with each of these attempts, and for the older brother I should say, our attempt to mirror the younger brother, is that we're trying to save ourselves by following the rules, our own self-effort. So we've got younger brothers, we've got older brothers, and the problem is that they're both We're both turned in on ourselves. We're called up in in what we might call our own self-salvation project. The key word there being self. In other words, self-sufficiency. Younger sons trying to save themselves by following their hearts. Older sons trying to save themselves by following the rules. But we are helpless to save ourselves. Because true salvation is about a restored relationship. It's about relationship. It's not about indulgence or accomplishment. It's not about a free spirit or a disciplined effort. It's about relationship. And yet, like the two sons, we often grasp for what the Father has rather than embracing the Father. We often love things and use people rather than loving people and using things. And so we become self-absorbed. 
which means we become isolated, which, mean, which means we become alone. We run from each other. We run from God. But God does not leave us there. That's the good news of the gospel. God does not leave us there. Though we run away from him, he runs after us. He pursues us by his saving grace. Okay, so that's a look, brief look, uh, at the two sons. Let's turn our attention to the father. Let's take a look at the father and the saving grace that he extends to both of these sons. In both cases, the father frees his sons... He pursues them, he accepts them, then he restores one and waits on the other. Frees both of them, pursues them, accepts them, and then at the end of the first double parable, he restores the one. At the end of the second, he is waiting. So again, we'll go with the the more clear on this one, the younger son, the father and the younger son. Let's look at the father's response to this younger son, his posture toward him. Uh, Back to verse 12 again. The demand comes, and what does the father do? He divides his property between these two sons. Father expected to refuse this demand. In fact, not only refuse it, but to punish this son, but instead he gives. And he gives generously. He lets his son go in an unprecedented act of love. And then skip on ahead, verse 20. After this younger son has wasted everything in a desperate situation, he returns with a calculated scheme. It says that his father sees him. Now, again, those original hearers would say, oh yeah, the father sees this son. Now the boom is going to be lowered. But no, Jesus surprises them and us. The father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. Filled with compassion for this dishonoring, disgraceful, defiant, death-wishing son. Filled with compassion for him. You see, the father had been looking for the son. He had been pursuing him. Not only with his eyes, but with his heart. No doubt praying continually for him. He had never stopped loving this wayward son. Never says that he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You see, he'd been hoping that the son would return. And he kept watch, just in case he did. Now, as Jesus tells the parable, everyone would understand that it didn't mean this father was watching 24-7. He had servants. But there was always someone on the lookout. Why? Because that father knew as soon as that son entered the village, should it ever happen, people would begin to notice. They would begin to recognize this dead, disgraceful son returning. How dare he? They would spit on him, curse him, throw dirt, rocks at him. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey comments, what the father does in this homecoming scene can best be understood as a series of dramatic actions calculated to protect the boy from the hostility of the village and to restore him to fellowship within the community. And quite profoundly is this. 
As some of you know, first century Middle Eastern men did not run. It was not stately. It was not honoring. They just plain and simple did not run. It was seen as humiliating, something beneath them. And yet this father runs to his son. He runs down the road before his son can get very far as a way to absorb the humiliation due that son. Taking all the attention off that son and putting it on himself and absorbing the dishonor. He threw his arms around him, literally drapes himself on his son's neck. It's like a good southern bear hug. He kisses him, the kiss being a sign of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now note this, very central. All of this before the son says anything. All of this before the son says anything. I can't help but be reminded of Romans 2. In Romans 2, Paul states, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Because here... Verse 21, here is where the younger son finally repents. Where he truly, authentically begins to repent in response to the extravagant love of his father. In response to his dad. Now we'll come back to the issue of repentance next week. And so then the scene ends with the father and this younger son. The father clothes the son with his own robe, the best robe, he covers his son's disgrace, and then he has a huge party to celebrate, to celebrate restored relationship. Okay, father and the younger son. Let's shift gears now. Father and the older son. We might not think that this father has a clue, that he's really missing the point. But he's not, because his, his posture is so very much the same toward his older son as it is to his younger son. So the father and the older son. Similarly, the father frees this son. He pursues him. He accepts him. And then he waits. Verse 12, he divided his property between them. The father divides the property. Again, the father is expected to refuse the demand in the first place. But he gives to each son in this unprecedented act of love, allowing them to choose Verse 28, after, uh, after the older son has refused, he's angry, he's refused to go in the party, what does the father do? What does he do? The father is expected to order the son's obedience. And the way that he would do that would be by way of one of his top servants. You go get the boy and you order his obedience now. He is to come here now. But, instead, it's the father who goes out. And not only that, he goes out and pleads with his son. Now, to leave a party that one is hosting is humiliating. And to plead with someone who has just disrespected you, again, first century culture, that's humiliating. Put those two together, going out of your party that you are hosting, and pleading, in particular, with an oldest son who is disobeying, pleading with him to come to the party. Double humiliation. But, as Bailey notes, for the second time in one day, 
The father goes down and out of the house, offering in public humiliation a demonstration of unexpected love. You see, the father runs to this son too. He runs to this son too. He cares more about his oldest son knowing his love and acceptance than about protecting his own reputation in the village. And then finally, verses 31 and 32, we hear the cry of a father's heart that his son would understand and receive grace. And then Jesus' famous parable in Luke 15 ends. It just ends abruptly. It ends with a father waiting. What, what happens next? Well, Luke doesn't record anything because Jesus just ended it there. Many uh, commentators call this the, mixing, the missing climax. The missing climax. And the missing climax is actually a very beautiful thing because it's our invitation. For me, the realization that the, the missing climax was my invitation was revolutionary. In fact, it is still so freeing for me today. Because I grew up in the church. And I read the parable of the prodigal son. I read the story of the bad kid who was not a good kid like me. I felt sorry for those bad people and wished they could just be like me. I was missing the father. And I was. I grew up. I was the good kid. I did the right things. But if you could have seen into my heart, so often a heart that was doing them for all the wrong reasons. You see, I may have been doing the right things, but my heart was not right. I was grasping to earn approval. I was grasping to be validated. I was grasping to say, look at me, I matter. I was grasping to get my way. And I also judged people. Now, you might have known me and not realized that, but oh, my heart was so judgmental. Because there are those people that this parable is about. And oh, they are so much less than I am. They are not good like me. And so I look down on them as a way to elevate myself. And the truth is, I still struggle with these very same things today. I still grasp for identity. I still grasp for a righteousness in and of myself through my own personal achievement, through my own disciplined self-effort. I still judge others. I look down on others as a way to feel better about myself. You see, I'm an older brother. I'm a Pharisee. This parable is spoken to me. And the missing climax is my invitation. And I remember first hearing this parable. I mean, I grew up with it, but just really hearing it about 20 years ago at Young Life Camp. And for the next 10 years, I would be resistant to the fact that this parable was inviting me into the gospel. Until one day, the light came on. This missing climax, this invitation says, Camper, come, taste 
and see. This is good news for you. My invitation to continually receive and rest in God's grace. My invitation to repent and believe and obey in response to the extravagant love of God. Compelled by the love of Christ. A heart changed. Not a heart grasping and trying to to validate itself. Not an attempt to secure God's grace. Because all I have to do is look at the cross and see that it was one for me. Well, not only now am I, do I recognize myself to be a Pharisee, but by God's grace, I am a recovering Pharisee. I look forward to the day that I am fully recovered. Until that day, I am a recovering Pharisee who is growing in awareness of the depth of his sin. Growing in awareness of the height of God's holiness and at the same time, the depth of his love and compassion and grace toward me. I'm growing in the freedom of enjoying a restored relationship with my God. What about you? Because you see, relationship with God is what we were created for. Enjoying relationship with God is what we were created for. And he invites both younger sons and older sons into relationship with him. You see, God knows everything about us. Everything. From the despicable, hedonistic bad deeds to the pompous, disgustingly prideful and self-absorbed good deeds. He knows everything. And he suffered that he might save. The Father runs to us. He runs to us who are prone to run away. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander. We declare it when we sing, it is true. And yet he runs after us that he might save us. And he runs to us in Jesus. It's the beauty of the gospel. But it gets even better as this parable ends. Because remember, I pointed out that it was, the, uh, it was the older brother's responsibility to serve as a reconciler within his family. Well, aren't we fortunate? We are so blessed because we have a loving older brother to serve as our reconciler. And his name is Jesus. God gives us himself in Jesus who died on a cross in our stead, who died so that we would not have to, who died on a cross to forgive our sins, who died on a cross that we might be clothed in the best robe, in his righteousness, that we might be restored to relationship with him, that we might return home. Bailey concludes, two sons, both rebel. Both break the father's heart. Both end up in a far country. One physically and the other spiritually. Further, the same unexpected love is demonstrated in humiliation to each. 
The parable illustrates the nature of God's freely offered love and tells of its cost. It is a love that seeks and suffers in order to save. A love that seeks and suffers in order to save. And that same extravagant love is continually offered to you and to me. And so receive it. Receive it afresh. Receive His love and grace today. And tomorrow. And the next day. And the day after that. Because you will need it again and again and again. And He provides. He always provides for us in Jesus. Let's pray.